I'm Dr. Phil Rosenfeld, Professor of Ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, where I'm also the course co-director of the annual Angiogenesis Exudation and Degeneration Meeting. New Retina Radio invited Dr. John Kitchens to moderate discussions from speakers who presented at this year's Angiogenesis Meeting. This is episode one of three, so be sure to stay tuned for future episodes. In this installment, Dr. Kitchens hears from Drs. Praveen Dugal and Vasada, who summarized their presentations about the effects of complement inhibition in patients with nascent geographic atrophy and complete geographic atrophy. After the break, the panel discusses the future of retina practices as it relates to therapies for geographic atrophy. I'm John Kitchens, and I'm joined today by Praveen Dougal and Vas Sada. Praveen is Executive VP and Chief Business and Strategy Officer at Iveric Bio and a Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the Keck School of Medicine. How are you, Praveen? John, uh, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm doing extremely well. Thank you. Fantastic. And we also have Vas Sada, who is a Professor of Ophthalmology at UCLA and the Doheny Eye Institute. Vas, thanks for joining us. Hey, John, it's great to be here with you and Praveen. Looking forward to our discussion. So we are going to review both of your presentations from this year's angiogenesis. And as most of us would expect from an angiogenesis meeting, we're going to talk about geographic atrophy. But actually, that's a really pressing issue now because it's one of the few conditions that we have that just simply is untreatable, and it may not remain that way for long. So let's dive in. Praveen, your presentation was titled C5 Inhibition of Avacincapad, or ACP as I will call it from now forward, for the treatment of geographic atrophy. Tell me a little bit about that, that, um, that talk. Yeah, so uh, John, you know, it is a hard name to pronounce. So we'll call it ACP, but Zymura is what people know it better as. So it, it is indeed a small molecule that is a C5 inhibitor. And what we have is where the first uh, positive phase three study and the first time that we've seen a treatment of geographic atrophy that is continuous for 18 months. Now, it's important to remember that the patients that we treated were patients with extrafoveal geographic atrophy. So the, the reason that that's important to remember is that this is the fastest growing geographic atrophy that we know of. And what we're able to show we believe is a very distinctive efficacy profile and a distinctive safety profile. Um, and it met the uh, p-value that was pre-specified uh, at the 12 month mark. And we, again, we, we showed positive results um, with, with a very impressive p-value at the 18 month mark. So we're currently uh, going to the final stage of the phase three program with a trial that we call gather two that's recruiting. And uh, we're hoping uh, that this will have a major impact in treating patients with geographic atrophy. Fascinating. So a second phase three study, and we'll talk a little bit more about that GATHER2 study here in just a bit. Tell us, Praveen, about the drug. So the drug itself is a small molecule. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's injected in the eye, as, as, as a lot of our drugs are. Uh, what we've done is to uh, go ahead and use it on a monthly basis in the GATHER1 trial. And what we're able to show, and maybe what I can talk to you a little bit about uh, is, the, is the efficacy profile and the safety profile that we believe is distinctive. 
the efficacy profile is such that we're able to show a delta, a difference between the drug and the sham with the very first measurement of six months. And what we were very excited about is that with each sequential injection, that delta between the drug uh, and the sham got bigger and bigger and bigger with the biggest delta being at the end of the study. Now we tested two doses, uh, the two milligram dose, which is the one that we plan to forward as well as the four milligram dose. Um, and we calculated it in two different ways. One is using the square root transformation and the other is using the non-square root transformation. And again, what we're very encouraged with is that regardless of whether we looked at the two milligram dose or the four milligram dose, regardless of whether we looked at it with the square root transformation or the non-square root transformation, the consistency of that efficacy profile remained, which is again, an early separation at month six, um, and then a increasing delta with each sequential injection with the biggest delta being at the end of the study. So uh, we are very confident in the robustness of the efficacy profile and, and of our data. And as far as the safety is concerned, this drug has been used in multiple different uh, studies. Um, the, the safety profile has been excellent. There were no drug-related adverse events. Um, the conversion to neovascularization was the lowest uh, in, on, uh, that we've seen in class to date. Um, and, and we believe that there's good science behind it. So we're very excited with the unique uh, efficacy as well as safety profile. Praveen, you mentioned that growing delta. Why is that so important? Well, it's, it, it's important because we've never seen it before. And we believe, again, for the reasons that I mentioned, that it's absolutely real. But you know, think about being able to tell your patient that uh, you expect, if they go along with, with the other one study, to be able to see a separation with the first measurement and certainly within six months and with every single injection, that, that difference between treatment and sham may get bigger and bigger. It's a very powerful statement. It's, 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 a, it's very impactful for the patient. And also because the GATHER2 study, the second part of her phase three program is a two-year study. So if that efficacy profile holds and that Delta gets bigger and bigger, as we've seen, we stopped at 18 months with GATHER1, but at 24 months, we're hoping that that Delta will be even bigger. And have you decided on a dose for the GATHER2 study or is it gonna be the two and the four milligram? So we decided uh, to go with the two milligram dose only versus sham. Um, we had uh, originally, we, we have we have looked at the one milligram dose, the two milligram dose and the four milligram dose. Um, we knew that the four milligram dose was not going to be commercially viable because the four milligram dose involved two injections of the two milligram dose due to viscosity issues. However, we wanted to see if we had re reached the upper limit of our, of our dose efficacy and we found exactly what we'd hoped to find, which is that there was a modest response with the one milligram dose. The efficacy profile with the four milligram dose and the two milligram dose weren't that different, but with the two milligram dose, the safety profile was a lot better. And again, it was commercially viable. So for that reason, um, we decided to go with the two milligram dose, which seems to be the uh, perfect sweet spot. John, can I, can I ask Praveen a question as well? Uh, about about this, uh, uh, pra Praveen, um, uh, you know, you mentioned the importance of of the fact that you, you look specifically at extrafoveal or non non foveal not involving lesions. Did you look at the 
pro progression uh, with respect to directionality and whether there was slower progression in one direction or others, so in particular slower progression towards the fovea, since obviously that's what we'd like to protect the most for these patients. So, so Vas, you know, you, you more than anybody else, uh, and your colleagues have done the most amount of work in terms of directionality of movement, and I think it's been it's been well characterized that the 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 movement of of these lesions for whatever reason it may be, going back to the days when John and Shirley Sarks were photographing this you know, years ago in Australia, tends to be fairly similar, which is a circumferential movement that's fairly rapid that hits the fovea at the end, kind of slows down. Uh, so the answer to your question is, we are looking at that right now. Uh, in fact, we're, we are looking at that with you and your colleagues in the CAM group, which, is, which we think is extraordinarily important for understanding this disease. Uh, there's lots of data that we have with, with uh, the Gather One study, and we're looking at that right now. But we specifically picked patients with extrafoveal geographic atrophy because we felt that that was a higher bar uh, to test the drug with. If we're able to slow down the disease in the fastest growing geographic atrophy, we felt that the drug would have met a higher bar of scrutiny. We also wanted to preserve the fovea, and we thought that was very important. So it gave us another parameter and another functional endpoint, which is pres preservation of the fovea, which we wouldn't have if we employed patients uh, who had foveal involvement. So for those reasons, we looked at that, but there's a lot of work to be done with the Gather One data. Uh, you're involved, your colleagues are involved with that post-hoc analysis, and, and we'll have a lot more data to report. Praveen, that's really exciting, Dad, and we'll dive a little bit more into some specific questions about it here in just a bit, but I wanna move on to Voss. Uh, Voss, you presented your research related to geographic atrophy and your title of your talk was the impact of pegcentacoplin on progression of nascent uh, atrophy in AMD. Tell us a little bit about your study, Voss. Yeah, thanks very much, Sean. So yeah, I, I was able to present some work we did on a post hoc analysis of the Philly trial, which is obviously was a phase two trial of, of pegcentacoplin or APL2, which uh, uh, demonstrated a reduction in the growth rate of, of GA lesions um, uh, uh, through the through the 12 month uh, primary endpoint when the patients were being treated either monthly or every other month, and then the, that that separation was maintained even in the next six month phase when the patients came off of the the drug. Uh, but our focus in this post hoc analysis was really on on earlier endpoints, and and kind of the rationale for this was that uh, that you know once you have atrophy, that's obviously loss of function. Uh, an absolute scotoma in those areas. And so ideally, we'd like to be able to intervene earlier in the disease process. In fact, that desire to be able to intervene earlier was the entire basis for uh, establishing the CAM group, um, which is the classification of, of AMD or atrophy meetings group. Uh, and uh, it was a consensus group uh, to try to figure out how can we um, uh, get these earlier endpoints. And it was decided that to do that, we really needed to go to OCT as opposed to autofluorescence and color photographs because we could actually see the layers of the retina and the RP being involved by the disease process. So we're able to define these entities, complete RP and outer retinal atrophy, which kind of corresponds to GA, and but also define an earlier um, uh, endpoint, if you will, an incomplete RP and outer retinal atrophy, which is kind of nascent GA. It's kind of like, you know, the photoreceptors are a little bit affected, the RPE is a bit disturbed, but they're not, uh, they're not absent uh, is, is probably the easiest way to think about those things. Uh, and so uh, the Philly um, study data set pre presented a wonderful opportunity to evaluate whether a drug could potentially impact 
the progression because obviously the GA doesn't develop overnight, it comes from someplace. Uh, and so we wanted to see whether we can interfere uh, with that progression process. And so what we did was we, uh, in, in, the, in the reading center, uh, we uh, took these uh, GA lesions and then we said, let's look beyond the GA border. So we went at least 500 microns beyond the GA border and we tried to identify these areas of nascent geographic, geographic atrophy or aurora. And then we looked to uh, follow them over time during the course of the study to see uh, what the progression rate uh, looked like. Uh, and we know that you know, from previous natural history work that 90% of them might progress uh, to atrophy over a 24 month period. So we expected that we would see some progression events. And in fact, uh, you know, we, we were able to do this. We, we restricted the analysis uh, pre-specified uh, to, um, to the uh, subset of the, the monthly um, uh, treated patients who actually received all 12 monthly injections and who didn't develop exudation. Uh, so that was a subset, it was only 41 of the patients, but again, pre-specified uh, and all of the sham uh, group that uh, that also met those same criteria. Uh, and, and fundamentally what we observed, the bottom line was that there was a considerably lower rate, a statistically significantly lower rate of progression from IRORA or nascent GA to GA or CRORA uh, in the PEGS had a Copeland monthly group compared to SHAM. In fact, it was a 39% reduction over that uh, 12 month uh, period. Uh, and that was seen whether you looked at it on an, a per eye basis, like if any of the lesions converted in the eye or, or on a per lesion basis, because obviously the eyes could have more than one, one lesion. And we also looked at the conversion from drusen to, to um, uh, um, atrophy as well. Uh, this obviously, there's not a lot of conversion events in 12 months and none of those were statistically significant, but there also appeared to be fewer conversions amongst just going from large drusen to atrophy over 12 months uh, in the pegsetacopan monthly arm. So it looks promising, um, at least I think, if nothing else, I mean, this is obviously a postdoc analysis. Uh, so it's more a proof of concept of the, of the idea that maybe we could intervene earlier in these patients. And so hopefully it'll, it'll create a pathway towards the design of early intervention trials. Hey, John, this is Praveen. If, if I can ask a, a question to Vas. Um, Vas, that, the, the, the study you did was, was fantastic and, and extraordinarily impactful, I think, for all of us in, in the geographic atrophy field. But I do wanna ask you two questions. Um, you know, one is if you are gonna look at something you define as nascent geographic atrophy, and you had the choice now of designing a trial today, what are the features you would look at? Um, is, is it just Irora and Cirora, or are there other features you would look at? And if so, what features would they be? That's my first question. And then my second question is, do you think there's a possibility of ultimately having this as a trial endpoint that the FDA would, uh, would approve? Um, and, and, and how would that look for trials? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, uh, Praveen. I, I think that uh, I, I think it's it's got great promise as a potential endpoint because I think we've got data that even in areas of aurora, there's functional there's functional um, disruption there that you may have a relative as opposed to an absent scotoma as you might expect in an area of GA, uh, and we know that from a regulator perspective, preventing photoreceptor loss would be acceptable. And that's the nice thing about going to OCT and the fact that these are OCT definitions, because some of the differences between Irora and Cirora is the extent of photoreceptor loss, yeah, even we see or RPE loss. And so, so I think I think that that to me is is very promising uh, in terms of using this in earlier endpoint. I think the the kind of work that that is still in progress that we need more of is to really understand the variability 
of the event rates. We have some information now on the, on the, on the frequency of progression uh, from Aurora to Cerora, but we'd like to have larger data sets because I think when you're doing a clinical trial, you want to be very confident uh, that your study is powered adequately to demonstrate a benefit. But I think those are the key things. I think we did identify, you know, you very nicely pointed out, Praveen, the importance of whether the fovea is involved or not. Uh, and lesions that don't involve the fovea tend to progress faster. And we found the same thing uh, in terms of risk factors for progression. Aurora that's not foveal uh, will tend to progress faster. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's very important as well in terms of modeling and designing a, a trial. Also, there are other um, features that I use in my clinical practice every day. I look at AMD patients, these so-called hyperflective foci, which, um, which, are, which, which Christine Curcio has shown is evidence of RP migration into the retina. We often teach our residents, we say that the RP cells are so unhappy, they left the monolayer to seek more greener pastures in the retina. And that's why it's such a bad sign. Uh, and the eyes like that, they tend to progress faster. And so I think you know, these additional biomarkers for progression are gonna be helpful for us in identifying the patients who are gonna benefit the most. Vas, tell us a little bit about pegcetacoplin. What is pegcetacoplin? What, how does it work? It is a bicyclic uh, peptide. It's a, so it's a very small um, molecule. It's pegylated. Um, uh, so it's able to be maintained in the, in the eye, but basically it, uh, it sterically binds to um, C3 and because, you know, the complement cascade C3 has to be broken down into C3A and C3B with C3B being the, the, the key to sort of continuing down the complement uh, pathway. But because it stops that cleavage, essentially, uh, it uh, prevents all the downstream components from even getting to C5. And the whole idea behind going after C3 uh, is, uh, is that, uh, that you, know, uh, you also prevent not only C3B and the rest of the complement cascade from, uh, from going forward, uh, you also uh, prevent the creation of C3A. Uh, and C3A has been linked to inflammation, so there's some rationale that it could be important. But of course, you know, we'll have to see uh, what, uh, what, the, what the, all the pivotal trials show uh, to see if there is a specific advantage uh, to that, but certainly that's a theoretical advantage in terms of thinking about inhib inhibiting at the C3 level. Fantastic. You guys both did an incredible job breaking down the complex data of your presentations into really understandable nuggets. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what this could mean for our patients and our practices. Welcome back to New Retina Radio's coverage of the Angiogenesis 2021 meeting. I'm John Kitchens here with Praveen Dougal and Vaz Sada. And we just heard from both of them about their presentations at Angiogenesis 2021, which offer some really promising treatments for geographic atrophy. We're still a few years away from the type of phase three study results that could lead to regulatory approval of these drugs. But I'd like to talk to you about the, the bigger picture of this. And a question for both of you, and I'll start with Praveen. Praveen, Complement something that is is maybe difficult for us to get our heads around is complement the veg f of dry AMD. Well, John, I don't know if it is. Um, you know, it, it's it's too early to tell. And uh, you know, the the thing that we have in neovascular AMD is that we've got a great biomarker, which is the OCT, which happens to be perfect for measuring anti veg f. Doesn't mean that there aren't other things that are involved. There almost certainly are. But in, in, in geographic atrophy or, or macular or dry macular degeneration, 
we have an objective measurement for geographic atrophy. And as Voss talked about, he and his group are pioneering other forms of measurement for earlier types of geographic or earlier types of macular degeneration before geographic atrophy actually occurs. I think there's a really good chance that there are, there are other factors other than complement, but complement certainly seems to be leading the way. The way that I think about macular degeneration is something that I know Voss has pioneered and talked about a lot, and, and a lot of his colleagues have, which is that it essentially is a prolonged wound healing process. You know, we used to think of macular degeneration as being a fork in the road, sort of binary, either you get dry or you get wet. And I think of it as a, as a singular highway that leads to geographic atrophy. Um, and it's a slow, chronic, inflammatory process that's part of the wound healing process. And like in any wound healing process, there is an interplay between inflammation and angiogenesis. And we know that because if we you know, cut our skin, there's going to be dilation of vessels. There's going to be angiogenesis to allow those histocytes and so forth to get there. So when that interplay causes a misbalance and there's more angiogenesis, then you get a detour in that highway. And the detour is what we know as neovascular macular degeneration. And as good as the anti-VEGFs are, what they do is they put you from the detour back into the highway. And, and, and how do we know that? We know that because as good as the anti-VEGFs are, when a patient is diagnosed, they still have 15 to 20 years to live with neovascular macular degeneration. And I don't know if a single study that goes beyond four or five years that shows anything other than those patients getting worse not by rebleeding, and actually rebleeding, as you know, is quite uncommon, but because of atrophy. And, that, and if you think of them going back on the highway to atrophy, it makes sense. So it makes sense to have complement involved, uh, but you can also imagine the impact of a drug that actually can slow down this highway. It's not just for geographic atrophy, but it may be for neovascular AMD, and it may be for earlier forms of macular degeneration. I think there'll be other pathways involved as well, but I think complement uh, would be dominant in that. Great answer, Praveen. Voss, I'll throw it to you, but I'll ask you this a little bit differently. Praveen mentioned angiogenesis as a part of this. We know that in these trials, both the Philly study and the Gather One study, we saw an increased risk of coronavascularization with these treatments. Is there a good rationale or explanation for that? And is that something we're going to need to be worried about going forward? Well, uh, you know, I think the exact explanation, I don't think that is uh, clear necessarily, John, but I do think that one of the things that we recognize now, uh, and I think it was always apparent, but it, we just, our imaging tools are so much better, is that patients often can develop uh, neovascularization in the absence of exudation. And I think uh, many of these patients um, uh, with geographic atrophy, they can have that finding. And, uh, and sometimes it never becomes exudative and sometimes, um, and, and maybe, maybe it never becomes exudative because eventually the RPE cells die uh, and there's no further VEGF production to sustain the nevascularization. That could be one explanation that we don't see it when we see relentless progression of GA. And now when you think about agents that potentially could inhibit that, that may give an opportunity uh, for these, uh, these non-exudative lesions to, to convert. I mean, it's obviously possible that there's some other direct mechanism, but it could be simply an unmasking of a process that occurs, we know, of non-exudative AMD 
uh, converting to an exudative uh, picture. Uh, and, and I guess my, my thought about that would be, you know, we have effective treatments for exudation, um, actually, and they're, they're highly effective. And you talked about, you, you drew that interesting parallel, John, between anti, anti-VEGF therapy and whether these kind of inhibitors are the new anti-VEGF therapy for dry AMD. And, and I don't think they are because I think it's a much harder problem. Sometimes I, when I see my patients, I tell them, you know, they, they ask like, well, why don't you have a good treatment for this yet? And I say, well, you know, we will, we'll cure AMD once we cure aging. Uh, and uh, and uh, is, is oftentimes what I tell them because it's it's a really difficult problem. And that's why even these treatments, um, as, as promising as they look in these in these trials, whether it's Gather One or the Philly uh, study, I mean, still patients have progression. And that's because, you know, none of us have stopped our bodies from degenerating. Uh, and so uh, we, we oftentimes think about neovascularization now as the body's sort of last ditch effort. In fact, when I see patients, I just, when they, when they ask what happened, you know, why did I develop neovascularization? I tell them like it's your body's last ditch effort. It's a good idea, but poorly executed is, is, is how I explain it to, uh, to patients. Uh, and so we can make the execution better with our anti vegf therapy. So I don't fear the development of exudation in these cases. I think that from a long-term solution to try to prevent atrophy for these patients, the neovascularization uh, may be a good thing. So neovascularization working in tandem with our uh, complement innovation or other mechanisms to slow down GA may actually prove to be a positive. Great answer, Voss. And you mentioned IRORA, CRORA. Are these things that we can clinically identify now? Should we be familiarizing our, ourselves with how to identify nascent GA in the clinic? And will there be algorithms built into our imaging to allow us to visualize these things? Uh, really great question, John. And, and I, th- I think that, you know, we do need to get, as clinicians, we need to at least get better at identifying atrophy on OCT. So at the very least, um, I think that's important. Um, I do think it's challenging to make these d- d- discriminations between Irora and Cirora in part because it's not like one day you have Irora and the next day you have Cirora. They go through a transition. Anytime you have a disease that's chronic, slowly progressive, like GA, you can, you can imagine that identifying these transitions can prove to be a challenge. The good news is there are many groups, you know, it's, it's and again, I'm a little biased because it's a research focus area of mine, but we've developed deep learning algorithms that can, that can do this. Uh, it can seem to do pretty well at, at doing this automatically. And obviously they'll only continue to get better with better training. So my expectation is that one, I, the first answer to your question is I do believe as clinicians, we need to get better at doing that. Phil Rosenfeld has proposed a simple solution of just getting your on fossil CT and looking for bright patches and the, in the sort of the deeper slabs, which highlight the possibility of, of early atrophy. That's something probably everyone can do relatively easily. Uh, but then for the more sophisticated, fine granular assessments, I do believe that we will have tools available to us with our imaging devices that'll assist us as clinicians taking care of these patients to identify uh, these, these, uh, these processes, which again, may be very important to identify if we have effective therapies. Praveen, you mentioned the Gather One study was a phase three study. And most phase three studies, it seems, are run in tandem with another phase three study, but you didn't go that route. Tell me a bit about why. So, John, that's a great question. Um, the, the, the concept of a screening study is well known in, in medicine, but maybe not as well known in ophthalmology and specifically in retina, which is that uh, you can do a study that initially starts out as a phase two study. Uh, however, you can go ahead and set standards to allow it to convert to a phase three study based on very stringent criteria. So you would have a smaller sample size. 
Um, but what you would do is to design the study with the proper masking like a phase three study. In our case, gather one was quadruple masked. The patient was masked, uh, the investigator was masked, the reading center was masked, and the sponsor was masked with an objective endpoint. And the p-value was set uh, at a very high bar, so a very low p-value of less than 0.0125 that was specified. Um, and the results can be one of three. Either you can miss the whole thing, in which case presumably that'd be the end of the drug, uh, you can show a trend towards success, but not quite hit the p-value, in which case you'd go ahead and go the primary route, or you can hit it out of the park um, and actually hit the p-value, in which case it would count as a phase three study. Uh, in our case, fortunately, both doses, the two milligram dose, which we plan to forward, and the four milligram dose uh, met the primary endpoint, and this thus counts as a phase three study. Um, again, this is a very well-known uh, path uh, in, in, in medicine. We have just employed it uh, in, in, in retina. Uh, obviously, it's, it's one of these things where it's quite risky because you have a very high bar, uh, but our, the company wanted to find out right away if Zumura was something to be advanced or not. And again, we're very fortunate that both doses um, you know, hit it out of the park. Um, realize also that the primary endpoint was objective. It wasn't visual acuity and appropriately it was geographic atrophy, quadruple mass. So the regulatory agencies consider that objective endpoint to have a much higher bar of scrutiny than a subjective endpoint such as visual acuity. But again, this is a well-known path in, in the rest of medicine. Uh, it, it was some, simply something that we employed uh, and used in retina uh, with the guidance, by the way, of, a, of probably the foremost uh, 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 a statistician working with the FDA, and that's Tom Fleming. So we're very happy that uh, both doses uh, hit the primary endpoint. Absolutely. Let's move on to a little more patient-centric discussion, and that is, Praveen, how do we get our patients buying in to monthly injections for the treatment of geographic atrophy? So that's a great question, John. So, so let me just address a couple of, of misconceptions out there. One is that geographic atrophy progresses extremely slowly in a matter of years and so forth. And the other is that patients simply won't come in because they're not bothered. And, you know, ironically, the second thing was exactly what I, I shouldn't say aren't bothered, but just simply aren't going to come in. Uh, and the, the second part is exactly what people said you know, for neovascular macular generation. Again, I'm certainly old enough to remember that. And, you know, and people would say, well, how many patients with neovascular macular generation would you see? And at that time it was like, well, not a whole bunch because patients just simply weren't sent because there was not a lot to do. They would stop at the optometrist and the general ophthalmologist because we just simply didn't have any treatment at that time. So here's what I think. First of all, geographic atrophy does not progress over decades and, and years. And you only have to look at, at great natural history studies, such as in the lampolizumab program, the proxy studies, that show that geographic atrophy, particularly extrafoveal geographic atrophy, progress in a matter of months. There's a very well-standardized progression between two and three millimeters squared um, where it, a year where there is, there is a progression that patients will notice in a matter of months. The second thing is that these patients, although they're their visual acuity may be great, are functionally debilitated. Um, you think about visual acuity, I mean, how often in life are we in a position where we're in a dark tunnel with a bright light at the end? It, never. You know, our, our, our day-to-day -day interactions uh, consists of contrast sensitivity and color and so on and distortion and so forth. We don't measure those things. I guarantee you there are a ton of patients out there, in fact, there are studies to support this, who may have a vision of 2020 or 2030, but are visually uh, disabled because 
Now, they may be accountants that can't read a spreadsheet because there's a scotoma or a lawyer that can't finish reading a sentence or an architect that can't see a straight line or an engineer you know, that can't draw a CAD. Um, so there are lots of patients like that. Now, we don't see that as retina specialists because they stop at the optometrist or the ophthalmologist and they say, look, you've got an aging spot and there's nothing you can do that can be done. But once we have a treatment, those patients, particularly because they're younger and in the workforce, certainly will come in if you can slow down the progression of their visual dysfunction. And that's one of the reasons why we targeted patients with extrafoveal geographic atrophy. And if you want to know the numbers, there's a recent publication in Lancet uh, that, that predicts that in, 20, in 2040, there will be 280 million patients uh, with macular degeneration um, around the world. Um, and of those patients, about 0.3% will involve the fovea, but 10%, almost 10% will be extrafoveal. Uh, so there's a tremendous number of those patients. And by the way, there's another fallacy too, that this is a disease of, uh, you know, Caucasian, not Northern Europeans. The fastest growing demographic is Asians. Um, it may look a little bit different because there are more males probably because of smoking than females, but this is a global worldwide disease of visual dysfunction. And I, and I truly believe that any drug uh, that uh, slows down the progression of this will be tremendously impactful. So, so John, can, can, can I uh, add to that? Uh, I think what Praveen described is really spot on. Uh, I was just gonna say, even, um, you know, obviously these patients with non-foveal involved disease, especially if their other eye has already been lost, will be highly motivated. To, uh, to, for, for these types of uh, treatments. But I would argue that even patients with foveal involved disease going forward, um, I think that there's gonna be a huge premium on preserving as much retinal real estate as possible. And part of the reason is because we're getting better and better low vision assistive devices uh, featuring augmented reality and other uh, tools which can actually utilize areas of remaining retina better. Uh, and so that means the more remaining retina we can maintain for our patients, the better chance they have of having more functional vision, even if it requires some additional assistive tools. So, so I, I do believe that even though I think this is a huge challenge to stop something, which as I sort of alluded to earlier, is partly, you know, there's obviously an aging element here and you can't stop completely. The, the process probably, um, you know, I think that that any gain we can get will be will be important and and of of, of visual significance for our patients. I think you're spot on, boss. I mean, it, you know, even if they are involved in their 26 year, 2070, to see these people go to 2200 or 2400 is heartbreaking, and it just happens right in front of you. So for the last question, I thank you both for joining us fantastic guests. I think we've all learned so much more about geographic atrophy and potential therapies for geographic atrophy. Voss, I'll start with you. Within the next three years, will we have a treatment for geographic atrophy? You know, uh, John, I, I am very optimistic. I, I certainly think that, you know, the data for these studies looks uh, promising. Uh, and there's a whole host of other treatments that are under um, under development, maybe that earlier phases targeting different mecha mechanisms. And because there's so much activity in the space, and because some of these um, uh, studies, you know, as I said, the data looks quite promising, I feel optimistic that we will have something. Uh, it may not be the, the, the home run solution, uh, but it's, gonna, it's going to uh, make a difference, I think, for patients. So yeah, I, I do believe so. And Praveen, same question for you. Within the next three years, are we gonna have something? Also, John, obviously I've drunk the Kool-Aid. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I don't think, uh, I, I'm totally, 
of the belief that we will. I'm, I'm very encouraged that there are so many great companies in the complement field. Um, I want all of them to succeed um, because it validates the target. Um, but I don't think that's the end of the story. I think that's just the beginning of the story. I think there'll be a lot of other mechanisms that we'll explore. As Voss correctly pointed out, this is gonna be a complicated disease, but this will be the beginning of the story. And I believe that it won't be a single drug. It won't be a single mechanism of action. It'll be a combination and it'll be uh, extremely complex, but extremely interesting because there'll be some that'll be gene agnostic. There'll be some that'll be gene specific. Uh, we'll have injectables, we'll have gene therapy, we'll have you know, different kinds of proteins. So I think this is an incredibly um, uh, important space that will potentially be the most impactful thing that we do in ophthalmology. Absolutely. Well, listen, thanks to you both and congratulations on your great presentations. That's it for this episode of New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2021 angiogenesis meeting. Remember to keep an eye out for our other episodes from Angiogenesis, which should be in your feed shortly.